So Tim Del Toro, he's the guy playing the electric guitar over here. He's really good, isn't he? Yes. But he, he messes with me sometimes because as I walk off, he asked me during the welcome, he said, I'm surprised that you didn't mention anything about the Texans. And I'm like, oh man, I can't believe you, you know, you go there and you, you know, so uh, even though they had a great season, they had a great uh, opportunity, the Ravens just a little bit too much for them. But we've been talking about, um, you know, in your life, as you, as you live your life, how do you, how do you find growth that is sustainable? I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to some parts here, a little bit of controversy, I hope, uh, because it, we should have some controversy in some ways, but there's a real important story that Jesus gives that talks so much about it, just addresses the idea of this growth in your life and sustaining growth, and we'll get to it in just a minute. You've, you've heard it before, but I think you will be uh, kind of caught off guard by some of the things that are there that you might not have caught uh, before, but uh, just to begin, we started the first week uh, talking about aligning yourself in a relationship with God, a living relationship with God. And we talked about how Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he actually is, is showing them the alignment of their, of their life, right? You know the, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. It goes like this, our Father which art in heaven, what? Hallowed be thy name. In other words, you're so different than we are. You're, you're so set apart that we wanna set apart your name in that same way and be reminded that our heavenly Father, the one that gave us life, the one who put us here, he is different than we are. He watches after. Father right in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom, what? Come, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Give us this day, things we need, our daily bread and forgive us, and here's where there's a change even in his prayer, and forgive us our debts or our trespasses or our sins just as we, now here's, here's that part that change, just as we forgive those who what? They sinned against us, right? They, they, are, they are indebted to us because of what they've done. They've, they've trespassed upon our life. And then he says, and lead us not into temptation because we understand that we are prone to be tempted to walk away from God, to chase after other things in life and miss what life is really all about, that relationship with God. Lead us not to temptation. He's not saying that God is trying to get us to walk away. He's just saying that you, know, that, that you wanna pray, God help me with that, and, but deliver us from what? Evil. Evil is really defined as bad things that you do, yes, but evil is defined as walking away from God because God is good, so walking away from God would be walking in, uh, in the wrong direction in life. And I put this in your uh, outline because here's the part where you're gonna struggle. You, you have faith, you have a relationship with God. Last week we talked about how you need to put yourself in a position where your faith can grow. So uh, Henry Blackaby wrote a wonderful book a long time ago called experiencing God. And one of the points that he put in there was he says, you need to look around, see where God is active, where God is doing something, and you need to see if you can get involved in it. Because this, this, is, this is the movement of God himself. It's a wonderful thing to do because you put yourself in a position then where your faith can actually grow in life, and we need to do that. But, but here's the problem with just getting stuck or just stopping on that idea of growing my faith. At some point, at some point, you have to do something. <laughs> at some point, you have to do something. And, and we all understand that because we were built to wanna do something, aren't you? 
I mean, if you've got little ones, I don't have little ones anymore, but I have little grandchildren. And even as little grandchildren, you're taking care of them. You're doing everything for them. But once they figure out how to do it themselves, what happens? You go to do it and they push you away. No, you know, because they want to do it. They want to take over. They want to take some kind of control in doing things themselves. I think we were made for that. One of the things I found, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's probably especially uh, true with, with men, is a lot of times when men retire and they lose the doing part of their life, here was my job, here's what I had to get up in the morning to go do and work at it. A lot of times men struggle, I think more than, than women do, with their lives because they lost the doing part. And what am I gonna do in life? It's just me, I, I, I've noticed to me that, that women tend to be better at, even when they retire, they still are doers. I don't, I don't know why, but um, you know, men, to me, seem to struggle more with that. My dad was a doctor. Uh, my dad went to work for the state for about five years once he retired. And then when he retired from that, uh, he decided he needed to find something to do. He gardened, he farmed, he did all kinds of things, but he decided he was gonna get involved in teaching older adults who had never learned to read how to read and write. And what a wonderful thing. I mean, I thought, yeah, what a great project uh, to get involved with. And uh, he did it for just a little while and he found it so frustrating <laughs> because if you've gotten this far in your life and you can't read and write, you pretty much have adapted to how you're gonna live your life. And my dad just thought this was gonna be a wonderful thing, it was gonna revolutionize the world and everything, because he was big on education and everything. And then he pretty much burned out over it because he's like, man, that was frustrating because you just, you know, you couldn't get them to understand or to grasp it. And uh, I don't know if, if you're this way, I'm glad I learned to read and write when I was young and I don't even remember it because I don't know if I could do it, you know, now. But you have to do something in your life. There was, years ago, there was a lady, um, she did uh, weight loss and exercise and all that. And then she went through some struggles in her life and came back. And, uh, and I remember listening to an interview with her. Her name was Susan Powder. She's Australian. Anybody remember Susan Powder? Yeah, at one point she shaved her head. I mean, it was pretty radical, you know, in her look. But I remember this one time she's being interviewed and she says this, and I thought she's exactly right. She said, listen, her book was called Stop the Insanity or something like that. Listen, nothing changes till you change what you do. That's what she said. Nothing changes till you change what you do. She's exactly right. All of our thinking, all of our uh, hoping, you know, all of our good intentions does not change us if we don't actually then change the things that we do in life, wow. So how does that fit with the relationship with God? Well, so God comes in our life and God you know, builds a relationship with us. He draws us to himself. He teaches us what it means to trust him and to hope in, in him. And then God actually goes in and he affects, he changes the things that we do. The motivation sometimes is different. The motivation sometimes is radically different. But God actually comes in and he changes what, what we do. I put this in your outline. I think that you will find this uh, true if, here it is, it'll pop up right on that screen. There it is, at some point in your faith, you don't have, if you don't do something, um, you will grow what? Frustrated, sure you will. Because you were made to do something. You weren't made just to sit around and watch everything else happen. God made you like himself, God is a doer. At one point, Jesus even says to those who are criticizing him, 
He says, listen, my father, Heavenly Father, my father is always at work. He, he is always planning and doing, always. And, and we are sort of like that also. Even though uh, he often taught, and it's, it's important that you need to stop and take time to refocus on God again before you go back to your doing in life. In fact, here's what Paul writes later to the Colossians. Uh, if you know this verse, a great one to memorize. This is what he says in uh, Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24. He says this. In all the work that you are, saying with me, yeah, in all the work that you're doing, he's assuming you're gonna work, work the best you can. Work as if you were doing it for who? Yeah, the Lord himself. I mean, that, that ultimately, he's the one that gave us the ability, the opportunity, he's the one that put us here for a period of time, so do it for him. Remember that you will receive a reward from the Lord which he promised to his people. You are serving the Lord Christ. What a great attitude. They say, man, I remember that God has given me life, he's put me here, so the things that I do, I'm doing actually for him. I'm not doing it for men or for the world, I mean, I am, but there's a deeper and a more powerful uh, motivation in my life than just doing it for people. Sometimes I put in here, Christians though struggle with this doing good things part. <laughs> Do you? Yeah, because it, it feels like to us that what you're saying is that God will accept me or, or God will rescue me or save me if I, say it with me, if I do good things, but it's not actually that. It's actually that God rescued you so that you would do good things, so you would understand what good things really look like and, uh, and where the motivation for those things uh, comes from. And to the people in Ephesians, Paul, he says this, he says, look, you are saved by what? Grace. You're saved by grace. It's, it's, it's not your works. It's not what you do that saves you. You are saved by grace. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast about it and say that I saved myself. I worked my way to God or I worked my way to salvation. It is a gift that God gives. But he goes on to say, it's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and then verse number 10. He goes on to say, for you are God's workmanship. God is working in you. He's building you and building you for the good works that he created you to do, wow, so God actually has a plan for me and God actually wants me to do things that make me feel good about what I do even though sometimes they're really, really hard to do. Yes, they are. But he wants me to do those things and work toward those things. He knows that that brings a tremendous satisfaction to me and a tremendous reward to me when I know that I'm working toward uh, those good things. James is uh, the half-brother of Jesus and he wrote uh, a book in the New Testament, and James is one of those guys that, that really brings this out, and, and a lot of people struggle with James. In fact, the great reformer, uh, Martin Luther, uh, a long time ago, five or six centuries ago, Martin Luther struggled with James because he saw where the church had become so works-oriented, so do-oriented, that, that the, the church had kind of lost how we were rescued by God himself. That, that's very human for us to do that to want to take control of it and it be put upon ourselves and, uh, and live a life out of just guilt or trying not to feel guilty. Of course, here's the problem when you, when you do that. If you think you're gonna be saved, God's gonna reward you because of your, uh, with salvation because of your good works, here's the question. So how many good works do you have to do? How good is good enough? 
Yeah, it's a struggle because none of us are good enough to say God owes me entry into heaven or God owes me a relationship with him because of how good I have become, the things that I have done in life. But it's natural to kind of fall that way. I, I, I'll give you an example. I, I thought, this, thought about this this morning. Actually, I thought, think about this pretty often. In the morning, I get up, I uh, shower, and uh, one of the things I was taught to do by a lady who was a doctor a long time ago, she, she taught me, she said, you need to get up and shower, I mean, and brush your teeth in the shower. Yeah, you, you take your toothbrush, my wife will say you butter it, that's what she calls it, and uh, as I go to the shower, even if, I, you know, if I've gone out and run in the afternoon or something like that and I go take a shower, I take my toothbrush with me and I butter it and I get in the shower, and this is what she said, but the reason you do it is because you will brush longer, because you enjoy the shower, I do, I can stay there for hours, you know, just, you know, and so you, you'll brush your teeth a long time and that's, that's better for you and all. But this is what I thought about this morning. You know what part of our teeth we brush the most? The part you see, right? Because that's, that's our tendency is to say, I know that this part of my teeth, you know, is the part that people see, so I'm gonna work on that the most. And I did it this morning as I'm shy, I'm going, I don't have a mirror in there, but I'm just, you know, and I'm feeling it, like, you know, okay. And, uh, and no one sees the back teeth, you know, and so the back teeth can easily get neglected even though they're pretty important. You don't know this, but I have the most beautiful molars, really, look. <laughs> so if you can get the, so, yeah, no one sees those. They see the front teeth. And, and so we tend to work on those things the most and so doing good things is what people see, so we tend to work on it the most or think that that sustains us or that's okay just to do the part that people see, but the part that people don't see doesn't matter as much. And that means, as Paul says, that, okay, we're doing it more for people than we are for God, right? Because God sees on the inside of us. He sees what other people don't see. God sees our motivation, and the reason it's important for God as a father to his children, our motivation, is because that's the part that will sustain us. At some point, you know, the part that people see kind of wears out because, you know, you just get too old or people don't care anyway, or, you, you know, or, or people are working on their own. It just, it just loses its motivation. But, all, but when, when the motivation comes from a relationship with God who sees us on the inside, there is a sustainability to it. There's just a power to it that you can't find um, in any other way. It's just, it's just God working inside of us in that way. So here's what, here's what uh, James says. All that's to set him up. Here's, here's what he says. What, I like this word again, he has it in there. What good is it? What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your what? You're, at, you're doing. What good is it if you say, I have faith, I believe God, I trust God, even I have a relationship with God, but it doesn't show in the things that you do. Look at, listen to what he says. Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother and, or a sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, like today, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give the person any food or clothing. What good does that do? <laughs> yeah, what good does that do? He says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Now this is James pushing hard 
on the idea that faith has to produce something. He said, unless it produces good deeds, it is dead, James says, and it is useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith. Other people have good deeds. But I say, how can you show your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my what? Yes, it's producing something. Even in the Bible, Paul talks about this. He talks about the Holy Spirit coming into our life and producing something, a fruit in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. And, and if you don't see the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces, at some point you might wanna stop and say, well, wait a minute, am I really trusting in God? Am I letting the Holy Spirit live inside of me and produce what he wants to produce in, in my life? Or is this me trying to take over and do it my way, losing the power and losing the motivation that I should have in life? It, it, it's part of a testing or looking at your life. Not again, that the good deeds that you do are gonna get you into heaven, they're not. They just become the product of an inward change that God is bringing in your life that has power to it. It, it is the power to change you even on the outside in the things that you do. So I, did, I put this in your outline because I don't know, I just felt kind of tricky when I was writing this out and uh, it will pop up on the screen there. Yeah, there it is. Um, <laughs> do some good, you should. You should say, God made me to do some good. And, and here's what you'll find, there is this, four things I put in here. First of all, there's a glory in it. There's a need in it. Um, there's also, number three, an identity in it. And finally, number four, there is a reward in it. There is. There's, there's, there's power in what you do. There's a need in what you do. I need to do good things. People around me need me to do good things. There's identity in it. It kind of helps remind me of who I serve and who I follow and, and, and who it is who is living inside of me. And yes, there's a reward in it, absolutely. There's a reward in this life and there's a reward in the life to come in doing those good things. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, which there is no law against the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is what? Nine things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. See, I have a prompter to keep me going. So I'm control. Yes, exactly it. Thank you, Monica. Yeah. And those things, when we allow him to produce those things in our life, then all of a sudden our lives are very different in how we live them, the satisfaction that we have, the sense of who God is uh, in our lives and how God himself is working in us. So let me take you, I told you I was gonna take you to one of the stories that's pretty famous and this is on the back side of your outline. Um, it, it, it's really a story, I would say, of how our heart is revealed because our heart does come out in the things that we do. Luke chapter number 10, and if you haven't read the 10th chapter recently, you'll love this. A very, the, the chapter begins by telling, uh, Luke tells about how Jesus sent out the 70, or some um, Greek manuscripts say the 72, and I know you might think, so which is it? Was it 70 or 72? I don't know. Uh, it's probably about equal if you go back into the the uh, older manuscripts, whether it's 70 or 72, and the truth is it doesn't really matter. You send them out in pairs, and you send them out to go do something in the surrounding areas. This wasn't the 12 disciples. These were other people who followed 
and uh, listen to Jesus' teaching. So they were followers or disciples of Jesus. And he sends them out with a, with a mission and, and limited supplies to go out and do something and come back. And it says they were just fired up. They were amazed at when he had empowered them and sent them out at what was, what was happening. And they saw all kinds of things happen, including people who were struggling, who were ill, whatever, you know, recover and, and were healed and their lives were changed. But they also opposition. And he prepared them for that. He said, you know, when you're accepted, rejoice, this is great. Say the kingdom of, of heaven is near. Um, when you're rejected, say the kingdom of heaven is near and brush the dust off your feet. It was a symbol in their culture and just, just move on. And they came back. They were so excited. They were so fired up. And then this is what it says later in that chapter. This is, this is really good. You know this story. Verse 25, he says, and one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? So this, this person, um, after this, comes up to him, probably because he sees all the excitement that's going on and everything that was happening. And he comes up to Jesus, and he's going to put Jesus to the test. He is a lawyer. He's an expert in religious law. And if you, you, know, if you know a lawyer, lawyers are going to kind of test what you say or what you do, Right? They're gonna say, okay, I understand, but I saw what was happening, but let's kind of work on this, and uh, let me kind of put you to the test because I know you think you're powerful, but let me, let me kind of push some things a little bit uh, on you. Uh, this, this, this person uh, is very smart. This person, because he was a lawyer or an expert in the Jewish, the Mosaic law, he understood the law, he understood the requirements of the law in the Old Testament. And so he was going to test Jesus as far as how, how does the things that he says, how do, how do they work? This, this idea of testing him is that the, the idea that he's kind of going to put him on trial. So I'm going to examine who you are or what you say or what you've done. And I'm going to see if I can find some fault in what you do or what you say. I'm going to see if there are any holes in your armor, any in your, things in your argument that I can go after. So he's, he's putting him to the test, and so here's what uh, Jesus replies to him, because he asked him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? It's, it's not because he's seeking eternal life, it's because he's testing him to see what he would say as far as is concerned. I, I love to, to point this out. A lot of times we confuse what he's saying. It's in the language. He's not saying, uh, Jesus, how can I make sure that I never die? That's not what he's saying. Their understanding of eternal life was not just the, the length of life, a longevity, as much as it was a quality of life. How you live, what kind of life that you live, how, how connected to God is that life, how satisfying is that life. Because it pointed to a life with God even after this life which was of a whole different quality of life. So even now, he's pointing to that, right? So even as you are a, a believer, if you found a relationship with Jesus Christ, one of the things that you found was life is just different than it was before. There, there's something more satisfying about life. It's not that there aren't struggles or difficulties. Struggles, sure, yeah. But there's something that's, that's just different about life. Even Jesus came and he said, listen, I came that you might have life and you might have it more what? Yeah, abundantly. In other words, it's a, it was a totally different type of life and a, and a quality of life 
that if, that if you were like me, you say, I long for that. You know, I, I wanted to know that that existed and, and, and how do you find that? And where do you get that from? And this lawyer is kind of, you know, gonna test him on this. I know what you say, but how would a person find, you know, or inherit this, this type of life? So here's what Jesus says. Look in the next verse, verse 26. He says, well, so what does the law of Moses say? Because he knew this guy's an expert in the law, so he would know. Uh, how do you read it? And the man answered him, you must say it with me. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and what? So this is Old Testament. The Old Testament says this, that, that you are to live uh, in a way that you love God with all your heart, strength, soul, might, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I would tell you, I think that's kind of a connection, right, to God and then a connection to this world that God made and the fact that, that God loves people in this, in this world also. But if I were to tell you, if someone were to tell you, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, you, know, you would say, well, how do I test that? How would I know if, if, if you do or not? Even John will later write, says, well, I'll tell you how to test it. <laughs> if you can't love your neighbor, it's hard to say you really love God. Since God created your neighbor, he gave your neighbor life, and, and you don't like your neighbor, and, and this is where it really gets difficult, doesn't it? Because, you know, we, we like what God has done for us. We like how he loves us, how he cares for us. And we can grow into a place where we're saying, I've really learned to love God. That's what you should do. I've really learned to love what he's done. But my neighbor is a different thing. Because I know, because let me just go and tell you, you haven't met my neighbor. If you'd only met my neighbor... You would know why I say that because my, in fact, even sitting in here, you know, you might not like the neighbor that you're sitting, you know, next to even now. That's a whole different thing when it comes to people. And one of the reasons is because we see people, right? We, we struggle with people. We may look at our neighbor and say, but my neighbor is doing better than I am doing. I know that this happens in my neighborhood all the time. My wife tells me they, a lot of the, the ladies struggle in my neighborhood because she has a better husband than they have. Okay, maybe, that, maybe it doesn't work that way. Maybe it's the opposite. That uh, Yeah, and you say, well, how can I trust God and love God if someone else got a better deal, you know, than I got? I mean, how, you know, and, and this is where, you know, it really gets testy for us, and it really becomes a struggle for us, and, and I know you're thinking, well, you sound like you know a lot of, I do. <laughs> you know, they're all saying it takes one to know one, right? We all struggle in this way. But this is why it becomes so important that, that God's life inside of us, the love that we have for God, it, it doesn't just you know, involve a thing that we say and that we show up you know, once a week and say, oh, I love God, and then we go. It, it involves who we are, our strength, our mind, our soul, every, everything about us, because we will have to go out and encounter our neighbor um, all the time. So Jesus does what Jesus often did, Jesus comes up with a story uh, to deal with it. Oh, and by the way, um, Jesus says in verse 28, right? Yep, you got it. This is what you're supposed to do. Do this and you will live. And then it adds in verse 29, the man wanted to do what? Justify his actions. He's a lawyer. He's smart. Well, hang on, you know. So let me cover this. I want to justify how I live my life. And here's what he does. He asks him, so who is my neighbor? <laughs> who is my neighbor? I like that question. I, I, 
I have friends, you know, when they became Christians, they would just go around and say, I just love everybody. I just love, and I would say, you don't even know everybody. How can you, how can you say you love everybody? You know, and, 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 I, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick at maybe someone in here too. Some people think the Bible commands us to love everybody. It doesn't. It doesn't, it, it, Jesus doesn't actually deal with that. You should love every person. I don't even know every person in the world. And let me tell you what's harder than loving everybody, just loving the guy that lives next to me. That's hard enough, you know, because that's where I struggle, where I see, where I interact. Man, that's, that's tough. And I've had a good friend. One time he had someone come up to him and kind of get on to him about, you know, the, the church this, that I'm in, this church is not deep enough and it doesn't go into da da da. And he, I love it, his answer. He says, well, I don't know about you, but loving your neighbor is about as deep as I can go because I still hadn't figured that part out, you know? <laughs> Seems simple, but, but it's, man, for me, it's really, really hard. Yes, it's a test. It's there so that you would be tested and you would say, okay, how deep is my love? And so how can you grow? How can you move forward? And in order to do that, you're gonna have to do something. You're gonna have to show love to someone. Whew, man, that's just so hard to think how that's gonna work. So here's what Jesus, here is his story. He replied with this story. He says, a Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, so I'm sorry, get my map right. So here, from Jerusalem, if, you, if you're going toward um, the Jordan and you go the River Jordan and you kind of go up north and go east, there's a city there, uh, Jericho, you've, you've heard about it, and this guy fought a battle, right? His name was Joshua, yeah, Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, and so, you know, it's about 20 miles. Um, it's a, it's a, an interesting uh, geography there. Jerusalem is on a mountain. It's on a hillside, and um, Jericho is down in a valley. So it's about 20 miles, but it's a drop of, I think, three or 4,000 feet as far as sea level is concerned. So as you go in this direction, there are a lot of ravines cut and ridges, kind of like you know watching an old western, and you say, man, this is a rough, rough, rough territory. And that road was known for bandits and and is a dangerous place to travel. So this guy's gonna go from Jerusalem, it would say down, but he's actually just going down as far as sea level's concerned, all the way down to get to uh, Jericho. In fact, I, I read that as early as the early 1900s, this was still a road or a way that in that part of the country, they did not recommend you travel because it was dangerous. It was just the perfect opportunity for bandits to uh, rob you and to be hidden and there was no way for the law enforcement to find them or catch them or get to them. So he's, he's traveling down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes because clothes were very valuable in their day. And uh, they weren't fitted, so you know, you could, anybody could wear them. And um, they beat him up and they left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. So the Jewish man, Great, a, a Jewish priest is coming along. Uh, maybe he was going from Jericho to Jerusalem to serve you know, in the temple. He comes along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and he passed him by. A temple assistant, Jesus says, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side of the road. Then a despised Samaritan 
came along. The Samaritans, uh, they lived further north than Jerusalem in the area, and they lived kind of in the central part of what was Israel. And uh, it, it's interesting to go and try to read and figure out why were the Samaritans so despised by the Jewish people, and then why did the Samaritans so despise the Jewish people? And it was because after the, uh, the, the first, um, where they were taken off and that part of the country was, was conquered uh, by the Assyrians and they, were, they came back, they intermarried with, with people of other religions and other cultures. And eventually the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. So uh, they said that Jerusalem was not the place of the temple, this was the real temple. And of course you can imagine if you say that, you're gonna be in a battle over who's right and wrong. And Jesus you know, has this even encounter with a Samaritan woman. She asked the same things. And so they just kind of struggled with each other. Uh, they, had, they were Jewish blood, or at least partially Jewish blood, but they just didn't get along with each other. And so much so that by Jesus' day, when the Jews would go up north, they would usually cross over the Jordan River, go up north, and then cross back in order to not go through the area of uh, Samaria where these people lived. And if they did, they'd brush the dust off their feet and say, you know, forget them and just kind of move on. So of all the things, for Jesus in the story, to bring in a Samaritan, someone from Samaria, is, as the hero of the story, and that's what he's about to do, is probably as offensive as you could possibly get with a teacher of the Jewish law, a lawyer who understands, who knows, and who is trying to do what? He's trying to justify what? Himself, how he sees it, how he lives and what he does. That smack of us also, sure. We like people like us, see it the way we see it, vote the way we vote, and we wanna justify our way and ourselves. And I know you say, well, well, wait a minute. I mean, shouldn't we be able to do that? I mean, that is the way human beings are, but Jesus has brought in this scenario where there's a Jewish man He's hurt, he's bleeding, he's been robbed, he's lost everything. For a, for a, a priest or, a, or a, an assistant to the priest to touch a dead body or, or even someone bleeding, yes, it would make them unclean as far as going to Jerusalem and serving in the temple. They would be unfit to do that. I know you might think, well, how would they know? Well, in their day, you'd probably have the blood on your clothing and things. If you had somebody really beat up like this and had no clothing left because they were stripped and robbed of everything. Yeah, it would, it would show up. And so they're not gonna take a chance. They're gonna go to the other side of the road and they're gonna move on. Why? Because the priority has become what? <laughs> Them, yeah. Not this fellow countryman. But a Samaritan, he says. A despised Samaritan. Oh, by the way, also, in the, in the, in the mindset of the Jewish people at this time with Jesus, Jesus is probably, in some ways, the Samaritan. He's the one outside of the way they do life, outside of their traditions. A lot of times he is doing things that they say, ah, you can't do that. He heals a man on the Sabbath. You can't heal a man on the Sabbath. And Jesus is going like, what are you talking about? So if the man is healed, that's a bad thing. In fact, I love it. One, at one point, Jesus says, so what good thing that I have done are you gonna convict me of, say I'm a bad person for this good thing? Doesn't that sound strange? But we do it sometimes because there's something else that we see that protects us 
that we're holding up as uh, the standard in, instead. So Jesus says, once again, a despised Samaritan, verse 33, he came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them up. Then he put the, the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bills run higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now Jesus asked this question, verse 36. Which do you think was the neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandage? See how he connected it back to the commandment? So you say, yeah, and love your neighbor as you would love yourself. In other words, the way you, would, you wish someone would love you or take care of you. So if you had fallen to bandits, would you care you know, if the, what nationality this person is or, or you know, how they voted or what team they pulled for? Would you care? No, you would just, in your need and in your hurt, you would just want someone to have compassion upon you in your, in your state of not being able to help yourself and losing everything. And he's pointing out that in this case, it was someone who they considered an enemy. He had compassion upon him. I think it's the part that, that we struggle with. I struggle with this also. I tend to have values and things that I set up, and sometimes my, my values that I set up prevent me from seeing the need of the other person and understanding that, like me, they, a lot of times they are hurting or struggling, and they just need someone to show them some compassion, some mercy, to care for them, as I, I should, as a human being that, that God created and, and, and gave life, and you say, yeah, but they're not my neighbor because they don't live in my town. Well, in this case, Jesus is pointing out, right, that they're a neighbor because that's who you encountered. That's what a neighbor is. There's somebody that I walk by, I'm standing by, that's, that's my life, and so here is my opportunity to do something, yes, to do something based on what I understand about uh, God himself and what God has done for me. So which of these is a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? And the man, this is the law, he says, well, the one who showed him, say it with me, the one who showed him, in other words, he acted upon it. He did something because he wanted to show the man mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, so you go, you go. And you do the same thing, wow. Pretty tough, isn't it? <laughs> But it is who Jesus was. I mean, Jesus came to be honest with us, straightforward about our lives, and to let us know that in what we do, then something of what we believe, where our faith is, something of, of who we look to, it, it has to come through our lives. It has to be reflected in our lives. And, and he's making a point of saying, if, if it's not then maybe we wanna stop and re-examine the first parts, where our faith really is, who we're really looking to. And, and listen, I, I, I agree, I will tell you, boy, this makes life a lot messier. It does, <laughs> makes life a lot messier when you have to deal with it in this way, because it's so much easier if I can just set things in categories and figure things out in a way where I don't have to deal with stuff like that, especially things that I don't wanna deal with, 
and I don't want to be burdened by, but all of a sudden God says, okay, but wait a minute. If you want to be like your father, if you want to walk in a way that you show you know your father, if you want your faith to grow and to increase, it will get messy. It does something else too that I need and you need also. All of us need someone who looks at us, sees us, and deals with us in a way that they say, I think your life matters. I think there's value to your life. But by the way they treat us and the way they act toward us, they, they validate our life, even though we may be very different from them or are raised in a different way or not see things the same way. Because it, it, deep inside, I'm looking for the same thing. You are too. The people you encounter are looking for this also. They're looking for the fact, does God see me? Does God validate my life in some way? And, and if you understand the gospel, if you say, I believe the gospel, you would say, yes, he sent his son Jesus Christ into this world to die and give his life for you. Not because you're good enough, you've done so many wonderful things, you've earned that validation, but instead in this way he validates us because of his compassion and his mercy toward us, knowing that in doing that, you will find a different strength, a different motivation, so that you would act and you would live differently also. So let's pray together. And even in doing this and bringing this up, I know that uh, you may say, whoo, man, I'm so sorry I came to church today. And it, no, it's, uh, it's actually a really good thing when God challenges us because he's, he's causing us to grow. He wants us to grow. And Father, we just thank you that you do. You see so much more of a possibility of who we are because you made us. You made us for a reason. And uh, Lord, we thank you that you do challenge us. You challenge the way we see things, the way we do things. You, you push us out of this place that we find ourselves so many times where we're only concerned about our way and how we see it and we forget that you might not see it the same way that you do love your sons and your daughters and you want them to live out and believe and act out the possibilities of who they could become and what their lives could mean and it's, it's hard for us because Father, there are things that we care about and that we want and sometimes it seems like the way you push us, it might cost us some of those things but at the same time, Father, we know that you only do what is best for us. And you only push us in a direction that you know would only make us stronger and would make our lives better, even feel better when, when temporarily it's a struggle and it's worse. If you're here and you've never trusted that God does love you, he cares about you. He proved it by sending his son into this world. And Jesus lived the, the perfect life, never sinning, even though he was tempted just like us with every struggle that, that we go through, he never yielded to them. And he did it for a reason. 
so that he could offer his life as a solution, a, a healing for us, who we are, to bring us back to a relationship with the God who created us. As he said, our heavenly Father who gave us life. And in that connection with him, we could learn, we could grow, and we could even as we struggle, do things differently than we would have done them otherwise, all because of him. Lord Jesus, come live inside of us. Forgive us of our sins, our struggles, our short-sightedness. Give us a new life, give us your spirit to live inside of us so that our lives would have a different meaning, even in this world, as we pray in Jesus' name.